You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading today is Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 to 19. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom I love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they both, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, band. Good morning, everyone. Happy Canada Day, long weekend. Um, first time guests and visitors, those in town from out of town, big warm welcome to you. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, on behalf of the staff and leadership, big warm welcome. You're an answer to prayer. Great to have you here with us. We are working through Genesis 22, as you just heard read. Um, possibly Abe and Isaac's first and last father-son camping trip. Um, very famous section of scripture. Um, probably one of the best in all of the Bible, a section I would say is absolutely essential to understand if you're going to understand the, the larger meta-narrative of the scripture. It's packed with symbols and, and imagery and, 
and, and, and foreshadowing that just oozes off of every line. I've really been enjoying my time in it and looking forward to getting into it together. You need your Bible open here at Praxis, so if you haven't done that already, go ahead and do that. You can turn it onto your phone. We've also got some blue Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, that's our gift to you. I've got something flying around my head, but I just got it. So um, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at this. Um, additionally, if you have one of our sermon series guides, we're in the very last chapter of that this week, so you can go there, space for notes. We've got some additional additional study resources and things that you can um, um, dig into and help make this come even more alive outside of Sunday as well. We're going to look at three things for the note takers in the room. We're going to look at Abe's faith proved that we see presented in this text. Secondly, we're going to see God's provision supplied. Thirdly, we're going to look at God's promise revealed. It's all here in this text. Um, Lots here. So I'm going to pray and we will get going. Father, Lord, just thank you uh, for a chance to gather on this Canada Day long weekend and reflect on your goodness and graciousness towards us, the gift of your son, the, the scandalous grace that is the gospel that you've directed towards us in the person of Christ. And uh, we thank you that you are a God who is self-revealed to us and also spoken um, scripture you have revealed and, and spoken this word through men as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You've preserved it by the Holy Spirit, and we believe it's alive, and, and it, it's doing a work today as well. And we just pray our own hearts would have this work done on it. We submit to that now. We ask your Holy Spirit would come and breathe life into this. Um, give us a greater picture of your son, Jesus, who is the pinnacle of all of Scripture, and that we, you would be made much of and glorified, Father. And, and it's in his great name, Jesus, that we carry this request before you. And I, I just ask that you would infill me and, and do this task, which I can't do, which is make this text come alive in our hearts. That's your work, Holy Spirit. So I submit this to you, and um, we pray in the great name of Christ. Amen. All right, with your Bibles open, Genesis 22, verse 1, very first line, we read this. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. So just to open, it says, after these things. And so we're picking up out of the story that we left off in last week. If you'll remember, God came, um, told Abraham to send out Hagar and Ishmael. We, We talked through that last week. So it's after that, the text tells us God came and tested Abraham. Uh, so Abe, he'd already heeded this command to send out Hagar and Ishmael, this, this child that he had through this woman, but now God's coming with another request. Take your son Isaac and sacrifice him. It can be a little hard to wrap our head around this, this request, but what the text tells us is that It was a testing, and we need to properly understand that word testing because there's several meanings for the word testing in English, and and there's several meanings in the original Hebrew as well. So it's important that we know what kind of test is actually being referred to here. When we hear test, we might think this is some sort of trial God put in front of Abe in order to, to, to tempt him, or we might interpret this to mean God's trying to discover how Abe would react to this command because that's how we use this word test. 
usually in today's day and age, to discover the quality of something or to discover something about something. So if my wife calls me to the kitchen and says, hey, Josh, um, test this. Tell me if this milk's gone bad. She's doing this because she wants me to discover whether the milk has become cheese or not. Okay, But this isn't what God is doing. When he's, when he's testing Abraham, as the text tells us, um, God's not testing Abe to find out if he actually has faith in the sense that he doesn't know if Abe has it or he doesn't. He's all-knowing. He knows. What's being communicated is a different meaning of this word test. It's not testing done in order to discover. It's testing done to reveal. This type of testing, um, we refer to this, or it will get used, pardon me, in like a metallurgical field. My wife was a, a welding engineer. It's a, it's a type of testing that reveals the strength and quality of something. And so it, it could be perhaps described as putting something to the proof, evidencing what's there. It doesn't manufacture faith. It doesn't produce faith. It reveals what's already there. To paraphrase a commentator I read this week, he said this, the tests of faith don't make faith, and they aren't intended to break our faith. That's important. They're allowed in order to display our faith. So it doesn't produce it. It, it reveals it. it. It puts on display what's already there, and you know, that's important. I, I, a distinction just to rightly understand is because there is events that we face. There's tests that we go through, and they're not, they're not meant to question whether we actually have faith. They're also not meant to destroy our faith. They're meant to shape and strengthen our faith and put it on display for the world around. And so what's going on here is, is God has called Abraham in, into a situation in order to put on display his faith. But... Abe doesn't know that's going on. So the, the narrator of the text here has told us, God tested Abraham, but that, that didn't happen for Abraham. Abraham doesn't know he's being tested. He just thinks there's something going on. And that's an important note because I think like Abraham, we don't always don't know we're being tested. There's things that come at us and we don't know that they're a test. And they can kind of feel like, man, this has probably just come along to destroy my faith, but this isn't what... This means, this isn't how God tests. The tests God allows have been permitted by God in order to put our faith on display. James tells us this, the brother of Jesus. If you could go on to that slide, James, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we should let that steadfastness have its full effect so that we can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is an important note. We can't confuse the testing God permits with the testing and tempting that Satan does. God's tests and Satan's tests are two very different things. Satan comes to test in order to destroy. The scripture tells us he comes to only kill, steal, and destroy. The tests that God allows his children to go through are meant to strengthen us. And if you're familiar with the story of Job, it illustrates this very well. You'll remember Satan came, he wants to crush Job, and, and God allows Satan to test 
to, because he, he has a different objective in this. God allows the request of Satan because his purpose is not to tempt, but to test in the sense that the situation serves the purpose of putting Job's faith on display, and it did. The, the, the test, the trial, it actually refined Job's strength, and the events that Satan tries to destroy Job with, God uses to strengthen Job with. And so this is the sense here. This is the test God has for Abraham. We can read on in verse 2. It says, um, he told him, he said to him, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And I want to I draw our attention to this one line. Your son, your only son, whom you love. There's a repetition. And actually, if you drop down, you take a look in verse 16, you'll see this phrase used again. And so whenever you see repetition in the scriptures, pay attention to it. There's something going on there. We see this phrase used twice in the text, but there's repetition within the line itself. Your son, your only son, whom you love. Why is there repetition? Uh, well, I think this is speaking to Abraham's extreme love for his son. Some translators have um, argued your only son could perhaps be translated as your favored son. And when we see that, then it seems like what's being pointed out through this repetitious description is that Abe loves his child perhaps more than he loves God. Isaac, to borrow an idea from Tim Keller, Isaac's become a bit of an idol to Abraham. And you can understand why, if you remember. His first son, Ishmael, who he bore through doubting the promise of God illegit or illegitimately with Hagar, was sent away. And, and now he's left with Ishmael and it's kind of natural that he would have a strong bond with him, right? But what seems to have happened here as we, we dig into the original language a bit is that Abe's hope is tied to Isaac more than it's tethered to God's promise. He's trusting in what can naturally happen through Isaac more than what would supernaturally happen through the promise of God. And it makes sense. I mean, we do this today as well, too. Children are, are kind of like little, little idols, in many parents' lives, we live vicariously through them. We, we order our lives around them. They, they do become little objects of worship. The hope of our little worlds, our everythings, the things on which our hope is placed and where our faith is anchored. We know this because many people, if something, God forbid, happens to their child, this is one of the number one things that causes people to walk away from their faith. How can I believe if God allowed that to happen to my child? What's your faith in? This is why I think when the devil comes for Job, he comes for his family. And then his money, which is the other thing we tend to, to bow and worship before. These two things is often what our hope is in before God. And when taken, will cause people to abandon their faith. They test our faith. They prove it. They evidence where our faith is placed or the lack of faith that we have. So God calls Abe to the test of sacrificing his son to evidence where his faith is, whether his hope in becoming a great nation is naturally 
hoped in Isaac or if it's supernaturally placed in God. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on the mountain of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. I think there's a bit of a hearkening back here if you were with us earlier in the series. Remember when the angel of the Lord um, came to Lot in Sodom? What it's, what, remember what he did? Um, he didn't do much. He actually, so he came to him, he spent the whole night there, and then the next morning, we read in Genesis 19, as the morning dawned, the angels again urged Lot, saying, up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But Lot lingered. I think that there's a contrast being set up here between Lot and Abraham. Lot lingered. Abraham didn't. He quickly goes about making preparations and immediately heads out on a three-day journey to the place where God had told him to go. His faith is being proved. It's being put on display. He's acting upon the command of God. His faith is being evidenced through the actions he's performing. And this is true of all faith. Our faith, or lack thereof, is evidenced in our actions. What our roots are in is produced through our fruits. He's producing now. We're seeing a change in him. We've seen lots of lack of faith from Abraham. Now we're seeing him act in faith. And I I think that these few lines are, are speaking to the faith, not just... Yeah, that Abraham had, but they speak to what he had faith for. Because when he arrived at this place, or when he arrives at this place, God commands him to go to, we read the text telling us this. It says, then Abraham said to his young men, so these travel companions he brought along, stay here with the donkey, pay attention to this line, even underline it in your Bibles, look look at it in verse five, okay? Stay here. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. So he's going to obediently sacrifice him, but he has faith that Isaac's going to come back with him. Now, this isn't some lie. He's just kind of like telling his travel companions so they don't like lynch him and keep him from sacrificing Isaac. What this is evidencing is the fact that he actually has a, a full hope. This is expressing his hope in the promise of God. What are these promises? Genesis 17 tells us this. Earlier on, God had promised him, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son. You shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. He believes the promise of God and believes that God's going to give him offspring. Why? Because God said it and God can't lie. God's word's been proving itself true so far. Genesis 21, we saw this reiterated by God to Abraham again, saying, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Abe's believing these promises. He doubted them before. Ishmael is living proof. He doubted that it would come through him, so he went and produced Ishmael. Here he is believing so much that he's willing to sacrifice Isaac. You read on, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. God will provide. He didn't know how it was going to happen, but he knew God wouldn't let Isaac die. Or if he did, he knew God would raise him from the dead. God would do something. 
but his promise wouldn't fail. He was learning here to walk by faith, not by sight. And this is encouraging because up until now, we've seen Abe thinking purely pragmatically, walking purely by sight, not by faith. So he goes into a foreign country. He pimps his wife out because he's fearful. His fear causes him to think pragmatically and, and, and come up with some other way because he doubts the promise of God that through Sarah would come this offspring. Doubt led him to pragmatically produce his own child by way of Hagar. But now he's learning. He doesn't understand fully, but he's coming to trust. Why? Because trials like this are working to produce something in him. This is what God has trials for, to produce things in us. Faith. And it makes me just pause and think as I was thinking about this this week and maybe a question I'll pose for all of us too is that is there perhaps a purpose that God has for the trials that we're facing? Have we, have we maybe been thinking they, they've come along to crush our faith but has God maybe allowed them for a greater purpose? Are they maybe meant to be doing a work in our heart that nothing else could accomplish? Um... Very timely this last week for us as a faith community here. Um, the last couple months behind the scenes, we've been working hard on securing a new venue. And thought we had the cat in the bag this week. Um, we were at the point of signing a contract for a great new large building in Kelowna. And it fell through for completely unforeseen circumstances. Again, if you've been with us, we've had this happen a few times. We've had two offers in on buildings that have fallen through. Uh, I don't know why, but I know God's good. I don't know why these things keep happening. We, it seems like these tests, and we're like, well, what's happening? We're, we're recording, but we're beyond the fire code in this building. You know, like, how are we? <laughs> when everyone shows up, we're going to get kicked out of here soon, so we'll work. We'll copy the set. We'll use the second video for the internet, okay? But, but here, we need to believe that the God who started this church, this body of believers here, will continue to build it. He hasn't brought us this far to crush us. He's doing something. I want, I want faith that's, that comes to the surface in the midst of situations like this. I want that for us as a faith community, but I want it in my own life. I want it in all of our lives. We, we want to have that. Faith like Abraham is, is displaying here. We're all going to face situations and trials, and the enemy wants to use them to crush our faith. God has allowed them because he's in control. He's allowed them to put our faith on display. And so as we face them, we need to keep this in mind. And, and, if, and if our faith is weak, we need to seek out brothers and sisters who can put a little wind in our sails, who can put a little steel in our spine, who can remind us of the promises of God's towards us. We need to go to the word quickly and put it back into our mind because the culture and, and will we'll do the work of Satan quite often in trying to deflate us and crush us, but God is for us. And Abraham models this for us. Um, Hebrews words it this way. Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered 
God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. God's promises won't fail. And this leads us um, perfectly into our second point. We've, we've looked at Abe's faith being proved here through this test, but now we're going to take a look at God's provision sublimed. Take a look at um, verse 7. We'll read from there. Isaac says to his father, so they come to where he's been commanded to go sacrifice him, and Isaac says, my father, and he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where's the lamb for the offering? Looking at his dad a little sideways, right? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Keep reading on to verse 10 here. When they came to the place which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. That line took the knife, reached out to slaughter his son. It, it's chilling, but it tells us Abe here, he's willing fully to obey God regardless of the cost. Abe here acts in obedience because he trusts. He trusts God's character, and as Hebrews 11 told us, he trusts God's character. He trusts his son to God because he trusts who God is. And Abraham lifted his eyes, so he's about to... to kill him, but because he believed God wouldn't let Isaac die, and then he doesn't. Verse 13, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. This phrase here, lifted up his eyes, that we see, this is another repeating line in this text. We saw it in verse 4 when he's walking up to the mountain. It says he looked up and lifted up his eyes and beheld the mountain. That chilling pain he would have experienced there. Oh, I'm finally here. I'm going to have to, to do this. Now is replaced with better emotions as he sees something that would serve as a substitute for his son. Rather than facing the incredible weight of his son dying, he lifts his head in joy because a provision has been made. And there is a much larger uh, story being revealed here, an even bigger story than just relief for Isaac, far bigger than just a promise to Abraham, far bigger than Isaac's redemption. There's something being foreshadowed here that is global in its scope. This isn't just a story about Abe's faithfulness and a ram that stood in the place of Isaac. This is a story about God's faithfulness and a future provision of Christ who would die in the place of us all. The ram here is what is referred to as a type and a shadow. It's a type of something that would come later. It's a shadow of a greater reality that would become known as time went by. Uh, this is, there's many of these in the Old Testament. This is probably the best. Probably the best. This story, though it is about Abraham and Isaac, is actually all about Jesus. And if you take a closer look at this text... It's been coming out in every single line. I want to show this to us. Look down at verse 2. Isaac here is referred to as what? Your son, your only son, whom you love. And if you know the New Testament story at all, you know that this language gets used of Jesus. Jesus is his only son with whom he's well pleased. 
Verse three, it says, Abe cut the wood before even heading out on the trip. To quote John MacArthur, he put it well. He said this, Abraham's advanced preparation reminds us of the fact that God began preparing to sacrifice his own son on the day Adam sinned. Indeed, before the very foundation of the world, he knew he was going to. Just as Abe prepared before they headed out, God prepared before Jesus was even born. Additionally, verse 4 tells us it was a three-day journey. There's some parallels there. Three days, they're, they're walking for Abe and Isaac to this place where Isaac was going to die. Three days of emotional, emotional turmoil as they headed to this place God commanded, which is reflective of the three days Jesus was in the grave. Three emotionally grueling days where Jesus was presumed as good as dead. Very similar to how Abraham would have felt about his son as he marched him to the place where he was to kill him. And so just as Abe lived with the idea his son would be dead for three days, Jesus was dead for three days and then came back to life. Verse 5, it's every verse. Abe leaves his travel partners behind and says, I and the boy will go over there. This is work for just me and my son. This is father and son business, just as the sacrifice of Jesus was between the father and the son. Verse 6, it says, Abe took the wood of the offering and laid it upon his son Isaac. And we know Isaiah 53, 6 says that the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Furthermore, just as Isaac carried his own instrument of death up a hill, so too did Jesus carry his instrument of death, a wooden cross, up the hill. Verse 7, just as Isaac calls out, my father, so too does Jesus, when he's being offered out, cry out, my father. It's every line. It's screaming out of this text. And what truly blows my mind is when we consider where this is all taking place. Mount Moriah. Ancient Jewish tradition claims Mount Moriah is the place um, where God created the world. It's the foundation stone. It's where he began his work. And if that's true, then the story comes a lot more alive. Mount Moriah is a significant landmark throughout the scriptures, one that comes up again and again. This is the same place where later on in First and Second Chronicles, we read God telling David to buy a threshing floor. This exact spot. He bought it, and his son Solomon goes on and turns this place into the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount, the same temple where every year the nation would gather to sacrifice a lamb who would die in their place, concluding in the final sacrifice of Jesus in this place. Jesus, the Lamb of God, perhaps mind most mind-blowing of all is the, the argument many scholars are making today that the exact same spot Isaac was to be offered up and a lamb was offered instead is the same place 2,000 years later Jesus would be offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. There's significant evidence and arguments articulating that the place where these two where Isaac was to be sacrificed, is where Jesus died. You can go and search that out on your own. Verse 8 then takes on a ton of new meaning when it says this, God will provide for himself a lamb. Jesus. 
verse 14 goes on to say that this place where he was to be sacrificed is called the Lord will provide. And on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Why? Because it's here that God did provide a lamb, his own son, who died in the place where you and I should have. Jesus stood in our place, took the consequences that we deserved, gifted us the righteous right standing before the Father that we didn't deserve. So in the same way that Isaac was spared because of God's provision of a lamb then, we can be we can be spared from the wrath of God because of God's provision of his son now. And if you're ready to have your mind blown a little more, when this is taking place with Abe and Isaac, Jesus isn't just being foreshadowed as someone who would one day come here. He's actually present. I want to show this to you. Take a look at verse 11. It says this, the angel of the Lord called to him from, Abraham, from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. This phrase, angel of the Lord, when it's used in the Old Testament, is used to refer to um, a pre-incarnate appearance or occurrence of Jesus. You can go research this on your own as well, and I've alluded to this a little earlier on in the series. Angels are angels. The angel of the Lord, the title, is a reference to Jesus appearing pre-incarnate. And this gets a little bit more mind-blowing when you look at verse 14. Take a look at it again. I already read it. Abraham called the name of this place where the, where the angel of the Lord instead told him to sacrifice the ram instead of Isaac. He called the place the Lord shall provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, take a look at the end of verse 14 in your Bibles. If you have a good study Bible, you probably have a little like number beside it. My ESV study Bible has a three. Anyone have something? No? You're not looking at, okay. One of you. Okay, so if you take a look, um, drop down to the bottom. That little three will give you some additional paratext, additional commentary. This is an important note it tells us that this, this can be translated a different way. And so one, it could say, on um, the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Another way that this line has been interpreted is this, is that on this mount he shall be seen. So it's saying, on this mount in the future, he, the angel of the Lord who's speaking to Abraham, would be seen. God in the flesh will be seen. The next time the angel that speaks is on that mount, he would come in the flesh to die in our place. And this leads us to our final point. We've seen Abe's faith proved. We've seen God's provision supplied. But now what we're going to see is God's promise revealed. And, and, and this promise that God makes here sets the stage for the rest of human history. It holds massive significance right through to today because the angel of the Lord, Jesus, who would one day come die in that same place, calls Abraham, who is standing in this place, he calls to him and he makes a promise, three promises in fact. The first, he says, I'm going to multiply your offspring. Take a look at verse 15. The angel of the Lord, you can write right on top of that, this is Jesus, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. Now if that's an angel, 
It doesn't matter if an angel swears to you by himself. When God himself swears to you, you can take that to all the way to the bank. By myself I have sworn, declares who? The Lord, all caps, Jehovah. So this angel of the Lord is speaking, and it's crediting it to Jehovah. Because you have done this, I will not withhold your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand that is on the seashore. He's saying um, in the immediate context here, he's assuring him this earlier promise that he would multiply him is going to come true. But then he makes a second promise, and it's to overcome their enemies. It's in verse the second half of verse 17, he says, your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. This is a way of saying his, his descendants would overthrow the nations that are presently occupying the land that God covenanted to them, the present-day land of Israel, which is the only piece of land on earth that God defined the boundaries of. He said, this is your land, and he promised it to them. He gave them this assurance one day, you would possess the gates of your enemies. But, so that's the physical fulfillment of this. It also has a greater significance when we consider what Galatians has to say. Galatians 3 says this, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, but it doesn't say to offsprings, referring to many, but to one. The offspring that the promise was given to Abraham Four is the one offspring who would descend from Isaac, Jesus. So this text is not just referring to Isaac, it's referring predominantly to the one who would descend from Isaac, Jesus. Jesus is the one who would possess the gate of his enemies, and he who has vanquished our enemies and sits in their gate. Satan's sin and death have been defeated by Christ. It says that he's defeated principalities and powers and the forces of evil in the world. He has the keys to hell and Hades. Christ has defeated the enemy. He's the one who's done it. This isn't just speaking about a material, physical promised land for the Jews. It's speaking about him opening the gates of heaven to us. Jesus has defeated our enemy, and that's worth writing in your notebook. That's worth writing right there on verse 17, where it says that he'll possess the gates of his enemies. This is who it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus. Colossians tells us this. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. Jesus has defeated Satan's sin and death, and he sits in the gate that they once possessed. God promises he would multiply his offspring. He promises them they would overcome their enemies. And thirdly, he promises that he would bless the nations through them. So look at it, verse 18. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Take your pencil, take your pen, circle this, all the nations. Circle it, all the nations. Because there's something so unbelievably good here. I don't want you to miss it. And I want every time you come back here, I want you to remember this. This is why. The word translated into English as nations here is the Hebrew word goyim. Some of you, don't, you might not know what this word means. That's okay. I'm a little bit more nerdy than maybe some. I want to I share what this word means. This is the same word goyim that Jews use for Gentiles. 
Goyim means nations in the sense that those who are of different nations. So why does that matter? Because no less than 2,000 years before Jesus came into the world in the flesh, God promised Abe Jesus would descend from Isaac. He would defeat Satan, sin, and death and offer forgiveness, not just to the physical descendants of Isaac, but to all the nations of the world. He took the covenant made to Abraham and his lineage and opened it up for everyone and says that everyone would be blessed through the work of this future descendant of Isaac. The lamb isn't just a substitute for Isaac. Jesus is the lamb who's a substitute for the, the sins of the whole world. This gospel plan is laid out right in Genesis 22. The storyline for the rest of the scriptures, it's, it's spelled out right here 2,000 years before Jesus. God is going to bless the nations through Christ. Revelation picks up on this, and it tells us the marriage supper of the land, the culmination of human history, every tongue, tribe, nation will be present praising the name of the Lamb. And this is why Jesus tells us, go to all the nations, because he died for them all. He's a sacrifice for them all. And so we, if we are Christ, if we are recipients of this, we need to go presently. There is 6,700 unreached people groups in the world who have no access to this scandalous good news. We are not saved to build a castle on the hill in Kelowna. We are saved to carry this gospel to the nations. We cannot be about the business of bunkering down and waiting for Jesus to return. We need to be about the business of going and telling everything that breathes that Jesus died for them. Because this is the plan of God from begin to, before the foundations of the world. Jesus. This is his plan. In Matthew 24, Jesus' disciples, they, they come to him and they ask, when will the end come? Lots of people today are about this question as well. <laughs> Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 24, 14. This is the good news of the kingdom. So, and this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. You want Jesus to come back? Go and tell these 6,700 unreached people groups. If we want Jesus to come back, we need to be about the business of telling other people. This is why Jesus commands in Matthew 28, 19, this 2018 and 19, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Because he sits in the gate. He's defeated Satan, sin, and death. All authority is his. Therefore, in light of that, go make disciples of all nations. This is what we exist for, to make Jesus known. And, and, and so there's 6,700 unreached people groups out there. But... Right here in Canada, between January 2022 and January 2023, do you know how many people came into this country? Anyone? A million. That's more than all of ever. Now, we might gripe about the politics of that, 
But what we can't miss in the midst of that is that for some reason, God's been bringing them here. The nations are coming here. We exist to make Jesus known to them. The scriptures give us this command, go and tell, and they they give us a promise as well. Habakkuk says this. He says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea bottom. We have a promise. The same way Abe had a promise that the descendants would come through Isaac, we have a promise the nations will come to faith. And so like Abraham... We need to be emboldened into action. We need to put our faith on display. If we believe Jesus is the savior of the whole world, we need to go and tell the whole world. Just as Abe is called to sacrifice his little pet, we are called to sacrifice as well. Jesus tells us, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has can't be my disciple. Because why? Jesus, if, if, a disciple is someone who's like his master. Our master came to bring the good news to the goyim, the nations. If we're like our master, our job is to go and bring the gospel to the nations. Like Abe, we're called to sacrifice. But there is a bit of a difference. Abe looked forward to a coming day. He looked forward to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is forward-facing. In the New Testament era where we now live, we, we can look back to the promises of God and see that they were fulfilled. He did come. He defeated Satan, sin, and death. We have all of those promises that were made for the last thousands of years. We can look back and see that they've come true. We need to look back, but we also need to look forward. And we have more reason to believe that the forward-facing promises of God for us will come true than any other person in all of human history because we have the examples. Stories like this that have been written, preserved, spoken for our edification to remind us God's promises are true. And so we have more reason than ever to go out and enact and act upon them today. Colossians says this. He has delivered us, church, from the domain of darkness, and he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. If you're here and you're in Christ, we get to rejoice because we have an entrance pass into the kingdom of God. Christ is purchased for us by his all-sufficient merit, not ours. That's good news. Just like Abe, we have a blessing and a future promise to us that's a product of nothing we've done. And it's held secure for us by nothing we do. This is the scandal of the gospel. And what blows my mind is that 2,000 years before Jesus, it's right here in Genesis 22. And so 2,000 years after, church, we've got a lot of reason to rejoice this morning.